I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, I have a conversation with Dr. Terry Finneman. She's a professor of journalism at South Dakota State University, and she's also a former journalist. She recently wrote a book titled Press Portrayals of Women Politicians, which came out just before the 2016 elections. The book looks at the history of media coverage of women politicians, including the first female presidential candidate, who you probably have never heard of. And I won't spoil it for you, but she was a really colorful candidate. You know, this is a really important read right now, especially in the light of Hillary Clinton's new book, What Happened? I mean, frankly, everyone's looking at the media right now in relation to how they cover the Clinton campaign. We all need to better understand what gender-biased coverage looks like in the media, especially given that more and more women are running for office. We also need to take a hard look at ourselves to see how we're contributing to this narrative. So without further ado, here is Terry Finneman. Dr. Terry Finneman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today. So you have a book, it's titled Press Portrayals of Women Politicians from the 1870s to 2000s. And, you know, this is really timely, especially after the 2016 election and following that a lot of women are, you know, putting their hats in the rings to run for office. But you wrote this book before the 2016 election. What what inspired you to research this? Well, I'm a former journalist, um, and so this is my training. And I worked as a political reporter as well. And so I've long been interested in politics and history. And I went to the Missouri School of Journalism for my Ph.D., and began needing to have a research agenda. And so doing something related to politics and history was pretty evident to me. Uh, The women part came along a bit later. One of the things that inspired me to look at women in politics was a video that was created uh, during the 2012 campaign that took a look at extremely sexist comments that were made on cable news shows over and over and over again about women in politics. And seeing that video had a tremendous impact on me. And I decided to start delving further into how the media portrays women in politics and the challenges that they have to overcome that men in politics do not. And so it really evolved from there. Now, since I am a former journalist, uh, I am very in tune to the news cycle and wanting to have timely research. And so I began working on this book in 2014, uh, and it was published in 2015 because I deliberately wanted it to come out during the election cycle uh, to provide more historical context as far as how was it in 2016 that we actually reached a point in this country where it was possible to have a woman president? Who were the women who came before who helped pave that way? And I wanted that discussion to be part of the election cycle. Right. So since you were a journalist, did you, after seeing this video, did you look back and notice patterns in your former reporting that you that you noticed in the video about how you covered women? Or were you kind of subconsciously aware of that and avoided those patterns? I don't think I was as aware of it when I was working as a journalist, um, because when you have time to reach do this as a researcher and do this full time, uh, you get a whole nother perspective. I had written an article when I was a journalist that won an award, actually, um, taking a look at female lawmakers in North Dakota, where I worked, um, and, and taking a look at their lower numbers. I believe at the time their numbers had gone up a little bit. And so I did do a story and touched upon it, but it wasn't as 
prevalent to me then as it is now. Right. I think the 2016 election woke a lot of us up to how women are covered in the in the media. But you know, think, thinking about this in the context of history and other women politicians, you open the book talking about Victoria Woodhull. And a lot of people, and I discovered this myself after the 2016 election, didn't realize that the first person to run for president or the first woman to successfully run for president was Victoria Woodhull. And that happened, I think, in the mid-1800s. Can you talk a bit about her? Yes. Um, I am absolutely fascinated by Victoria Woodhull. She is my favorite character in my book um, because so many people haven't heard about her. She was the first woman to run for president in our country back in 1872. And every time um, I talk with students about my book, I start off by asking them if they know who she is. And either none of them know or if I'm lucky, maybe one or two of them know. And so it's really a lesson to them um, that the history textbooks that they read in, you know, elementary school, high school, college, it's really a wake up call that, you know, you like to think of history textbooks as being very neutral, but there's a lot of history that's left out of those textbooks uh, that people aren't told about. And I think it's really a shame uh, that people don't know Victoria Woodhull um, because she has been written out because she was such a colorful <laughs> character. Um, <Yeah>. Especially, I mean, <laughs> that's for, an understatement. <laughs> even for today, I think she would be considered a colorful character, let alone in the 1870s. Um, so Victoria Woodhull has just a fascinating story. Um, she grew up in a family that could be considered the wrong side of the tracks. Um, her father was not a very successful businessman. And so Victoria Woodhull grew up with a bit of a chip on her shoulder, thinking that her family's rightful place in the world had been taken from them. Uh, so that very much influenced, uh, who she was later in life. Now, when she was about 14 years old, she became ill and a supposed doctor, Dr. Woodhull came to treat her. And she ended up getting married to him, even though he was significantly older. Uh, he wasn't a doctor. Uh, he was an alcoholic and a womanizer. Uh, and so by the time Victoria Woodhull is, you know, 16 years old, she is already in a not great marriage, um, which, you know, I talked about this with my students this week, actually. And I said, just imagine if this was your life and, and what you had to deal with, especially since this was a time where women really had no rights. So if you were in a bad marriage, you were expected to just suck it up and take it, right? And this also really influenced who Victoria Woodhull became because part of her presidential campaign was this notion of free love and that people should be able to love who they want, when they want, for however long they want. Now, this is still controversial today. So imagine how controversial it was in the 80s. Right. 70s, but it's because of when she, what she went through. Now, she did end up getting divorced from him, which was very controversial at this time, and that ended up getting her on the path uh, to her future career that she had. Right. So, you know, this this idea of free love, she actually made that officially a part of her platform. Is that right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you couldn't do that today. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, because of this platform, she was depicted in political cartoons at this time as being Mrs. Satan. She was referred to as being the satanic ticket. I mean, the press was just brutal to this woman. Right. I, I perhaps should back up a little bit and talk about, you know, how was it possible she became a presidential candidate in the first place. Yes. Um, and one of the things to especially note is she was not some, you know, no name random person. 
a lot of prominent people knew exactly who she was. Um, she was well known during her time. So she and her sister, Tenny, starting when they were young, worked as clairvoyants, uh, as spiritualists, um, because this was a job that women could do at this time to earn money. Um, and they found out that Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Vanderbilt who we have heard about in history, uh, believed in this. And they ended up moving to New York and began working with Vanderbilt, uh, which gave them a significant advantage in life. Uh, so Vanderbilt um, taught them a little bit about the stock market. Victoria Woodhull won some money, and she became the first woman in our history to open her own firm on Wall Street. And she, of course, then got a significant amount of press coverage because of how unusual this was. And then she became uh, more of a national figure through this. Now, this was the same time that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony uh, were really, really pushing for the women's right to vote. We had just ended the Civil War and the country was passing the amendments that allowed black citizens the right to vote. And these women were arguing that women should be included in that. Now, Victoria Woodhull was, of course, very aware of the work that these women were doing, and she wanted involved. And so by the time uh, the next national convention came around, uh, Victoria Woodhull was up there on the stage with them. She became the first woman to testify before Congress, right. arguing that women should have the right to vote. And she became a national political player right up there with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And so she really developed a reputation through this. So why is it that we remember Susan B. Anthony and not Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Well, Susan B. Anthony and Victoria Woodall had a major blowout because Susan B. Anthony did not want anything to rock the boat for her passion to get women the right to vote. And she thought Victoria Woodall was way too radical and upsetting people and blowing their opportunity. So they had a major falling out. So this is part of the reason that Victoria Woodall has been erased from history is because she was deemed way too controversial. But she had the name recognition. She was connected to the prominent women. She was connected to Henry Ward Beecher, an extremely prominent pastor during this time. So people knew who she was. And that's how she got the platform that she did because of her involvement with the suffrage movement. Well, she was always, she was already pretty quite famous before she decided to go into politics, right? And her career as a medium. I am from Memphis. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. And I, when I read the biography of Victoria Woodhull, I decided to look up some old newspapers with coverage of her. And there was an advertisement for one of her shows with her sister. Her sister, Tinny, you know, did these medium shows with her. And I found an old news clipping of her in the Memphis newspaper. So she actually made quite a bit of money touring the country as a medium before she even had her Wall Street firm. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I, it, people today may think that's, you know, really kind of bizarre that people bought into this during the time, uh, but they did. And part of the reason that they ended up in New York is states started cracking down on people who did this kind of work because, of course, they thought it was a scam. And so states started cracking down and forming laws against this. So that kind of made them have to move from state to state and place to place uh, to be able to keep up the work that they were doing. So what are some of the other things that were on her platform that were controversial? 
Well, that would be the main one that the press focused on. I mean, there was a quote in a newspaper criticizing her extreme and erroneous views on the marriage and other social questions. They also, the press also picked up on her quarrel uh, with Susan B. Anthony and wrote about the great row between the two women's rights factions. So they were very alert to that. Uh, And then Victoria Woodhull also had her own newspaper. She wasn't the first woman uh, to run a newspaper in our country, but certainly was a early founder of that. Um, And she would use her newspaper to write about these things and to expose, um, you know, the double standard that there were between women and men. And right before the election, uh, she really went full force in her newspaper about this to the point that she was arrested for publishing obscene material and ended up spending election day in jail. Um, And she was publishing what we now see as the truth. Uh, But at the time, of course, people didn't want to believe her and they called her a fit subject for a lunatic asylum. So, I mean, it was really media vilification. People running newspapers at this time, she was just way too out there and they really disliked her. You know, it's amazing that she was even allowed to run officially because she wasn't old enough, right? I mean, I think the the age... Right, yeah. <laughs> she yeah. was, what, 34? Right, uh, yeah, she was just under the constitutional limit. Now, when we say officially run, she really didn't because, I mean, her name wasn't officially on the ballot or anything like that, but she's still considered the first woman to run for president. There's no count as far as how many people actually voted for her or anything like that. But, you know, it's really interesting to me, and we're going to get into this during this interview, but it was just so fascinating to me to see that this first standard for how a woman presidential candidate was covered, there are so many themes from this time in the 1870s that I saw continue in the 2000s and how there is still this uh, push to villainize women who run in politics. So it's really, it's fascinating and it's very sad. Was one of them around the way she earned her money? There were some questions about her Wall Street firm and the, the reason she actually had a firm. Right. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, the the press very well knew her past working as a medium. Her family also, you know, as I said, uh, had this reputation of being from the wrong side of the tracks. And so they caused her some problems when Victoria Woodhull remarried another man. And if I recall correctly, her mother accused Victoria Woodhull's new husband of, you know, being cruel to her. And then that made the press. And so her family also caused caused her uh, quite a bit of negative headlines as well. You know, the thing that I noticed about the coverage of her when reading your book is that there wasn't a lot of discussion about her appearance, right? And that came, that became a lot more prevalent later. Right, precisely. Because, I mean, certainly there was photography during this time. Uh, Photography really, really came of age uh, during the Civil War. War and or not photography and illustrations, I should say. And so, right, this wasn't really a visually focused society at that time. And so that that comes along with uh, Jeanette Rankin, who we will talk about next. Okay, so let's talk about Jeanette Rankin. Um, tell us a little bit about her. Jeanette Rankin is really interesting because she really had an opposite up- upbringing to Victoria Woodhull. Jeanette Rankin came from a, a fairly prominent family in Montana, fairly stable. They had money. And she was a woman who 
you know, really wanted to be actively involved. So she got involved with the suffrage movement herself. And it's very interesting because she had close ties to the suffrage movement, just like Victoria Woodhull. She also had issues with the suffrage movement leaders. However, that really wasn't touched upon in the press. The press more so highlighted the great relationship that they had, uh, even though that wasn't always the case. Uh, So Jeanette Rankin really made a name for herself by traveling across the country to different states. States and lobbying to legislators to try to get them to pass suffrage in their particular state. Because at that time, the suffrage movement was really focused on a state-by-state strategy and slowly moving into more of a national strategy, but very much focused on getting individual states to approve this first. So she developed quite a name for herself, and she helped get uh, suffrage passed in the state of Montana. And so because of that, a lot of people knew who she was, and name recognition is at least 90% of the game in politics when it comes to getting elected. So she had the prominent family name. She had gone all around the state and into the legislature to campaign for this. So she had a lot of recognition. What also really helped Jeanette Rankin was the fact that, number one, she knew what she was talking about because she did have this political savvy. And she, I hate to say this phrase, but she ran as a woman. She knew that if she emphasized, you know, there are only men in Congress right now, there is no one there to represent the children. Who is representing the interests of children, right? Because of this longstanding belief in our country of the difference between the women's sphere and the men's sphere, and that only women were really experts on, quote unquote, women's issues and children's issues. So she was very savvy to use that kind of platform. Jeanette Rankin also ended up becoming the first woman in our country to serve in Congress, specifically because she was from Montana. This is very important. Now, today we'd think Montana, what? That is an extremely conservative state. How, you know, how is that possible? Um, And Jeanette Rankin was a Republican, but she lucked out from her circumstances, not only having the name recognition, but the fact that in the early 1900s, and, you know, late 1800s, a lot of people were moving out west. And so Montana's population had grown so much that the state was given another seat in Congress. And it was an open seat. And so Jeanette Rankin would go around and tell people, vote for the incumbent and then also vote for me. And so she wasn't actually running in against an incumbent. She was running for a wide open seat. And that was critical to uh, her success. Also critical, of course, um, you know, this was the time of the progressive movement. Montana and the West were really trying to highlight themselves as being progressive communities. Uh, The gender norms weren't quite as strict as they were in the East because everybody had to chip in and help out in the West. And so she really benefited from the specific circumstances of her time, as well as her own political savvy. We can't underestimate that. So, of course, because of all this, because Montana wanted to show itself as being so progressive, she ended up getting a lot of very positive coverage in the press. However, since we hadn't had a woman elected to Congress before, you know, a lot of people in the East Coast didn't pay a lot of attention to this. So her initial media coverage came from the local and regional press 
which was much more apt to give one of their own positive coverage. And then the national media, once they realized, hey, this woman actually has a shot, then they came in later and started giving her coverage. So that's a fascinating difference with her and Victoria Woodhull as well. So what was considered positive press for her? So, you know, some examples would be that she's a source of national pride for the National Suffrage Association, right? The, Victoria Woodhull would have loved to have that kind of commentary. <laughs> she was deemed to be an excellent speaker and a skilled politician. It was noted that surely this was progress with a big capital P. And so they really fawned over her with, with the word choices that they used to describe her. Now, on the other hand, she also encountered very gendered coverage. There were a number of headlines that described her right. as Congresswoman number one good cook and seamstress. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you really start to see this gendered coverage. You start to see this emphasis on her appearance. One story noted that if she's elected to Congress, she will improve that body because she is tall with a wealth of red hair. Even when good, Congress is not beautiful and needs adornment. Nothing is more beautiful than red hair. Now, Jeanette Rankin really didn't have red hair, but I guess that's beyond the point. Um, Okay, so there was this emphasis that this was a woman who actually was very politically skilled and knew, you know, what she was talking about. And yet there are these articles fawning over what she looks like, and she'll just be this pretty little thing to make Congress look beautiful, right? So you also have this trivialization that starts to happen. They're legitimizing her, but they're also very much gendering her and in the process trivializing her accomplishments. Right. And, you know, that really hasn't changed very much today. And I think the, the interesting part about that is that, you know, when when the press compliments a woman, a woman politician, it's considered positive. It, they, they don't think of it as actually hurting her image with constituents. Right. Right. One other thing that I should point out. So there were there were similarities between Woodhull and Rankin and that the press focused on both of their ties to the women's movement. Of course, they focused on, you know, a little bit of their platform. Uh, they focused on their personal background. But it was two key differences in how Jeanette Rankin was covered, beyond the fact that it was positive versus Victoria Woodhull's negative coverage, is that you start to see the press saying, Jeanette Rankin would be the first woman to serve in Congress. Never once did the press say that Victoria Woodhull would be, you know, was the first woman presidential candidate. I mean, they had so little opinion of her that, you know, they didn't even highlight that whatsoever. So they start to emphasize with Rankin what a monumental moment in history this would be, which, you know, had a more positive spin. And then as we were just talking about, you start to see the press putting more and more emphasis on the appearance of women in politics. Right, because they didn't actually take Woodhull seriously. I mean, they didn't expect her to succeed, right? Right, right. Correct. In all fairness, Victoria Woodhull was running against Ulysses S. Grant, right? Nobody was going to beat Ulysses S. Grant, okay? <laughs> um, and so that was part of the problem, too, right? I mean, she was running in an election year against a Civil War hero, and that just wasn't going to happen, right? And so 
And so with Jeanette Rankin, as I said, she had the benefit of, of running for an open seat. There wasn't an incumbent to inhibit her. And so that helped make her one of the firsts in our history. Right. Especially the free love candidate running against Ulysses S. Grant. I, I can't see that happening. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So I want to move on to another Republican candidate who no one took seriously, <laughs> and that's Palin. Okay. Of course. And, you know, one of the things that I learned I learned about Palin's political rise is how impressively fast it was. And that was something, you know, when she was a presidential candidate that wasn't really, I think it was brought up in a negative light, right? As right. opposed to thinking of it in terms of, you know, how savvy she had to be to rise so quickly politically. Right, right. Well, and then, I mean, if you contrast it with, with Barack Obama, who was really quite a newcomer himself, I exactly. mean, maybe not quite as much of a newcomer as Palin, since he'd obviously, you know, served in the Senate. But this was this was a time in our country where we really wanted something fresh, something new. And, well, it's still a time in our country, right? I mean, if you look at our past, <laughs> past election, we ended up picking somebody who was completely out of, you know, not entrenched in in the political scene. And so we still in this country are having that attitude. But, you know, even before she hit the national stage locally in Alaska, she was portrayed as a novice, even after having 10 years of experience. You know, I think one of the interesting things about Palin's coverage, you know, because she was a Republican, is that she was often portrayed and, you know, for lack of a better word, as, you know, dim-witted or, you know, inexperienced or, you know, anti-intellectual or not intellectual. And I think that, and this is just my own anecdotal observation, that that was kind of not seen as gendered coverage, but was seen as, it was kind of lumped into the stereotype of the anti-intellectual conservative because she was a Republican as being seen as, you know, her intelligence as being, you know, downplayed because she's a woman. Do you agree with that or? Oh, you know, I don't know if I do or not. Other people might argue with me. I don't know if that ended up having a gendered tinge or not. I I think it more so was that she was virtually unknown to the common person outside of Alaska and and seemed to come out of nowhere for, for them. I think that more so played a role. You know, what I think is interesting is that, that, you know, once Palin was on the scene, there was lots of focus on on women politicians and their appearance, you know, and especially around the fact that Palin was a former beauty pageant contestant, right? And, you know, what's interesting is that I noticed that, and I only thought about this afterwards, that feminists didn't really come to her defense. And, you know, I think that, you know, if this had been, you know, a a different politician, I think they would have, you know, called out talking about her shoes or, you know, what she was wearing or hair. But, you know, I also think that this may have been because she's a conservative and people don't typically think of conservative women as being a part of the feminist movement. Is that is that fair or not? Uh, I I would tend to kind of agree with that statement. Yes. I, I think that uh, conservative women do tend to feel left out that if they don't have more liberal type of policies, that they aren't taken as seriously. And and so I would agree. And I mean, throughout history, you see time and time again, 
that women not supporting each other is a significant reason why it has taken so long for the women's rights movement to make the progress that it that it has you know it's easy for women to to criticize men as being the ones to hold us back but quite frankly women have played perhaps arguably a greater role in in not sticking up for each other and being there for each other and and helping move all of us forward. So when you mentioned the emphasis on Palin's appearance, you know, this is referred to as the double bind, where women are damned if they do and damned if they don't. So Palin received a significant amount of criticism for how much money her family spent on clothes. On the other hand, if they had gone out wearing just what was in their closets, then she would have been criticized for not looking good enough. But then she spends money, well, then she looks too good. And so no matter what these women tend to do, it's never good enough. And that is a significant struggle for women who run in politics, that they just can't seem to win. And I'm when I say win, I mean with the general public, right, as opposed to winning and losing, right? Right. I totally agree with you. And I was thinking about that recently. And and, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal. And but even when I hear coverage of a Republican woman and most recently, I think it was Melania Trump, you know, she visited the um, she visited Texas while wearing, you know, stilettos and maybe they weren't stilettos. They were really, really high heels. And that, that really bothered me because, again, a woman who's, you know, she's not a politician, but she's in the political sphere. She's the first lady, you know, to, to focus on her appearance. And I mean, if you really wanted to be you know, substantive about, about her. You can talk about, you know, what initiative she's covering as opposed to what she's wearing. Um, you know, and then on the other side, the, the double bind is that if she had worn a pantsuit, they would have accused her of being frumpy or, you know, possibly imitating Clinton. So you're either too sexy, your heels are too high, or you're too frumpy. Yeah. I mean, and that, you know, throughout Hillary Clinton's time in politics, uh, you know, from let's start just going back as far as the 1990s. That has been her constant challenge. I mean, if you look at photos of her over the years and how she's constantly trying to change her hair and her outfits and wearing contacts instead of glasses. And I mean, it's just really kind of ridiculous when you think about it because nothing she ever did as far as appearance wise uh, ever seemed to be good enough. And it's just like, Seriously, (laughs) what more does this woman need to do? I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. This emphasis on appearance is is just so troublesome. And, you know, the fact that men, I mean, you see a little bit like, you know, what color tie is Paul Ryan wearing today and people trying to judge, you know, what mood does that mean he's (laughs) in or, you know, whatever. You see a little bit of that, but nowhere, nowhere near what women have to endure. And it's really quite ridiculous. Well, and then, of course, most recently over the summer, was it the discussion in Congress over the fact of what was appropriate dress to wear in the Capitol and the fact that sleeveless shirts, right? Remember that debate from this summer of whether women could wear sleeveless shirts? Right. Well, I tell you what, I'm a woman who went shopping this summer and it's pretty hard to find a dress shirt that isn't <laughs> sleeveless. There just really True. aren't a lot of options, right? Um, right? I mean, so even things like that, where we're constantly having to re- be reminded about our gender and if we're appropriate and dressing right, you know, these are things that men just don't have to deal with, not to this extent. Right. And with global warming, they, they better get ready for a lot of sleeveless shirts. 
So I just, I want to play devil's advocate again, because I think that when people hear this argument about how women are portrayed in relation to their appearance, you know, a lot of people will say, and I don't agree with this, but I'm just playing devil's advocate that, you know, oh, well, the press, they also talk about how men appear in their dress as well. For instance, they, you know, they make fun of Donald Trump's hair or that, that infamous tan suit that Obama wore, that unfortunate suit that he wore once. So why is that not a valid argument? Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, we need to consider how much should appearance play in this at all. However, if you look at research, women are by far, I mean, we're not even in the same ballpark, okay, criticized for what they look like compared to men in politics. So that is the difference. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I'm looking for equality here, okay? So if we want to keep critiquing how women look, have right at it. But you know what? We better have the men facing the same thing. Okay. It either needs to be all or nothing. That's what I'm arguing here. Right. So back to Palin. In your book, you'd written about an analysis of newspaper trends in relation to how Palin was covered. What did the analysis show? Well, actually, um, well, first of all, they, of course, described her as a polarizing figure, right? So you have kind of a reflection back to how Victoria Woodhull was covered in the press. But they also referred to her as a rising star on the right, Similar to Victoria Woodhull, you see this kind of catfight type of framing emerge. So with Victoria Woodhull, it was with her relationship with Susan B. Anthony and the mainstream women's rights movement. Here, you have this battle between the Sarah Palin camp and the Hillary Clinton camps, right? And kind of setting up these two women in their camps uh, against each other. Of course, you have the emphasis on her appearance, her sex appeal. But the most significant finding that I found with Palin's coverage is finally there was much more discussion of the fact that women in politics face sexism and that this is a problem. You start to see quotes from members of both parties acknowledge that this is a problem. And until we acknowledge that and until we keep having further discussions about it, nothing is going to change. Now, do I expect anything to change quickly? No, I don't, because this has been so entrenched in our culture, going back to the beginning of time, right, that you don't just change gender norms overnight. However, it's important, you know, to have podcasts like this, to have panels, to have discussions, to make people more aware. I've uh, spoke at events last year filled with women who are considering running for office to talk to them about my book and, and the challenges that they may encounter to make them more aware of this. And really bringing men more into the conversation with this is so important as well to talk to not only reporters, but to talk to, you know, the campaign people behind candidates as well, because, you know, John McCain's campaign team also, you know, said some, right. They expected that adding Palin to the ticket would all of a sudden just, you know, claim the woman vote, which was just, you know, completely (laughs) ignorant, quite frankly. Right. And so it's not just the press, it's society at large that needs more education on the sexism that women face. 
Right. So going back to the relationship between um, Palin and Hillary Clinton, you know, that's really interesting because I hadn't noticed this myself, you know, until I read your book. They did an interesting dance right during the 2008 election. So after Clinton lost the primary, she acknowledged the importance of Palin being on the ticket. Right. And Palin did the same thing. She acknowledged the importance of Hillary Clinton getting as far as she did in the primary. But they quickly kind of went in opposite directions. I mean, Clinton didn't want to be associated with Palin because Palin was seen as not a very serious politician. Right, right. And that's kind of similar to the relationship between Woodhull and um, Anthony. So one of the things I noticed about the the coverage of Palin was that, again, when it was positive, it was around her celebrity, right? And, you know, how her celebrity was good for the ticket rather than, you know, the experience that she had. I mean, despite her image, the public image and how she's being portrayed, you know, she she did have some experience and she was a serious politician, although she wasn't always portrayed that way. Well, and, you know, one of the points that I make in my book is that there was really a lack of historical context shared at this time as to how Palin's experience compared to prior vice presidents, you know, um, and that is so important. There was a lot of discussion about, is she ready to be president? Now, I'm not saying that that's not important. Obviously, you want a vice president who's going to be able to step in and know what they're doing. I get that. But there was virtually no discussion of how she compared to the experience level of prior vice presidents in our history. There was nothing to put her into context. She was just kind of left out on there on her own to be mocked for that. And I found that to be very problematic because I'm quite certain, and I don't study vice presidential history, so maybe one of your listeners does and can disagree with me. Um, But I have to guess we've probably had some clunker vice presidents in the past, (laughs) right? And it really would have been useful uh, to have that kind of context. You know, we can take a step back. So we're talking about the double bind here and the struggle and women not supporting women. I mean, let's step back here for a minute to 1964 and talk about Margaret Chase Smith, who became the first woman presidential candidate uh, to be placed in nomination at a presidential convention. Okay. Now she ultimately lost the nomination to Barry Goldwater, right? She didn't actually become the Republican Party's nominee. Um, But she made it that far. And that was a historical moment. Now, like the candidates before her and and like Palin, there was an emphasis, of course, on her politics, as there should be, her personal life, her impact in history, her appearance. But then you start to see this emphasis on her age because Margaret Chase Smith was older and Sarah Palin was younger. And so then you get back to the damned if you do, damned if you don't, because if a woman is younger, she should, quote unquote, be at home with her family. And if she's older, she should be put out to pasture because she's too old to be useful to society. Okay, which is really ironic because we don't have those conversations about men. Right. right? So if a male politician politician is in his 20s and 30s. He's an ambitious go-getter who's, you know, a rising star. Well, there's no, well, what about his kids? What about them left at home, right? (laughs) I mean, you just don't see those conversations that you have when women run, okay? And then, you know, again, you have this double bind. And it was just fascinating, some of the comments that women in the United States gave in news articles about Margaret Chase Smith. So one of these comments is, I wouldn't vote for Mrs. Smith 
because I don't have enough confidence in her. Women are too emotional. Okay, so relying on this ridiculous stereotype that, you know, women are too emotional, right, Um, to do anything. I don't know how we women function every day, right, because we're so emotional, right? (laughs) And then there's this other comment saying, I'm definitely... I'm not in favor of her because I feel we aren't ready to have a woman in the White House. Being president is a man's job. And it was really fascinating to me when I was reading these hundreds of articles about Margaret Chase Smith that really never did I come across comments from people talking about her policies or her platform. It was as if she didn't exist. She was simply woman. (laughs) And the fact that she was a woman, it didn't matter who she was. It didn't matter that she had decades of experience in Congress, that she had decades of experience with defense and all of these, you know, quote, male related type of fields that women normally didn't have experience in at this time. Um, Didn't matter. It was the fact that she was a woman and that was a problem and that was the end of discussion. (laughs) So this is the 1960s. Um, So by the time you get to Palin, there is more of an emphasis, you know, on her actual platform, um, which was useful. It simply wasn't anymore. You know, she was a woman, so she was a problem, although certainly that still exists. Let's not pretend it doesn't. Okay, let's not pretend that people, uh, you know, didn't vote for Clinton. I mean, clearly people still have issues with a woman, which is just sad in 2017. Right. You know, I I wonder what you, you make of and I noticed the same patterns with Palin and Clinton where before people will criticize them or they aren't going to vote for them, they'll preface it with, well, I'd like to have a woman, but (laughs) what do you make of that? Like including this? Yeah, or I'm not sexist, but. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, see, that's the problem. Well, and that goes along with the I'm not racist, but right. Or, you know, I have black friends or I have gay friends. (laughs) Right. So I'm right. And it's people it's people not wanting to acknowledge the own biases that they have, um, which is which is problematic and which is why you see college campuses focusing more and more on diversity and offering diversity classes um, to expose students to more diverse perspectives and to be more aware of these kinds of things. You know, we should start a hashtag that that says I'm not sexist, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah. You know, it's really interesting. You talk about when people start to emphasize age in relation to women. So, you know, they talk about age in relation to men, too. I mean, I think Bernie Sanders and and John McCain were really good examples of that. Sure. But, you know, with, with women, there's this kind of undercurrent of age in relation to their appearance. For instance, there is this story in your book about Nancy Pelosi. It was a story in the, in the, in the New York Times. And it was about Pelosi shooting a frown, the sort of the sort of frown that a grandmother would give someone who arrives at Christmas dinner in a wrinkled shirt. <laughs> That's just such a loaded, right, right. Uh, such a loaded description. It's gendered on, on many, many levels. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that's really, you know, my book is not a partisan book because, you know, I'm I really am not a partisan person. So this is really a book for both Republicans and Democrats to to read. Yes, most of the book ends up focusing on uh, Republican candidates. But keep in mind that, um, you know, Jeanette Rankin was referred to as being a, really a Republican in name only. But then you have Margaret Chase Smith, who was more of a moderate. And then you have uh, Sarah Palin, who was more of a conservative. And then, as you mentioned, you know, I talk about Nancy Pelosi and um 
some of the more democratic candidates towards the end of the book. So the overall point that I'm making is it doesn't matter what political party you belong to. This is an issue that all women in politics face and that they need to be more cognizant of uh, and rally together and really fight back when these problematic word choices are being used in a way that trivializes them and really you know, makes them not want to run for office. Okay. So the point of the book is that if we as a country want to be this golden democracy and representative government, that is our ideal. Well, that's great, but we're not really, because if you look at the statistics, the makeup of Congress right now is 20% women and women represent 50, you know, they make up 50% of this country. So we really don't have a representative government right now as far as as women in office. And that should concern people. And I, you know, in that video that I mentioned at the very beginning of the interview with clips from uh, cable news, one of them specifically said, it doesn't bother me at all that there are not enough women in Congress. Yeah. I don't care. Right. You know, and it's like, well, you should. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should. <laughs> I mean, think about, you know, the message that that men want to give their daughters about what opportunities they have in this country. You know, how would they feel if their daughter was portrayed this way or, you know, if they don't have children, you know, other close female friends, right? It, when you start to personalize it, then it hits home a little bit more instead of talking about it in these broad abstract terms. And we really need women in this country to have the same kind of opportunities as men have. Right. So, you know, I, I sent a, a link to the study. You've probably seen this by now, the Harvard study that came out analyzing the coverage of both Clinton and Trump and during the 2016 election. And, and Trump's coverage was mostly around policy, right? Although Clinton was the more experienced between the two of them. And Clinton's coverage was around scandals. Right. You know, and I, and I think the, the interesting thing about that is that when when there is when there was coverage about Clinton and her policies, her experience was either ignored or derided as being linked to, you know, establishment talk. Right. It was kind of dismissed. Like, yes, we know that your experience. However, we don't really want to talk about your policies because your experience. And that's something that was that was tough because it's it's similar to the double bind. And then that you can be too experienced as a woman and you're criticized for that. Well, I mean, certainly a factor in the Clinton coverage is the fact that the national press has been covering her since the 90s. And there was this the belief that everybody already knows everything they need to know about Clinton already, right? Which maybe they do, maybe they don't. Certainly the younger generation who didn't live through the 1990s, a lot of them had no idea really who Clinton was at all, right? right. And so it was kind of this assumption on the behalf of some people in the press that we've been covering this woman for 30 years. You already know everything you need to know about her. So how much do we need to rehash here? Uh, so let's just focus on, you know, the current situation. Whereas with with Trump, he didn't have that prior background. And so, I mean, certainly Trump has been around for decades already, right? But not in the same context. So therefore, he was more fresh of, you know, what what is this man? What are his policies all about? So that was a significant disadvantage there as well. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, that's not actually 
true that people knew a lot about her. Maybe that was the perception because she'd been around for a really long time. But, you know, a lot of people don't know about her work in, in Little Rock and in Arkansas right. and earlier in her career with women and, you know, with children and, you know, healthcare. Precisely. So, you know, that's really unfortunate. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly my point, that there was this assumption by reporters that people already knew everything when really that r- probably wasn't true. <laughs> right. So 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 now that we are gearing up for 2018 and 2020, there are more women, like I said in the beginning, who are kind of throwing their hats into the ring. So how do we what do we do? What do we, how do we hold journalists you know, accountable as constituents. Well, I think the first thing to keep to keep in mind is to start with yourself. <laughs> you know, what are you posting on Facebook? Yeah. What are you telling other people? Okay. Because we like to think of the quote unquote, the media, right? As this evil conglomerate that is scheming against us. When in reality, we journalists are members of the society around us and we are as influenced, you know, as anybody else. And so you can blame the media as much as you want, but you should, you know, probably start out thinking about your own assumptions first and what kind of phrasing you use. How are you describing women candidates on social media and to other people? Now, if you have issues with a specific article that you feel is being sexist, certainly you should call them up. You can write a letter to the editor, right, to try to point that out. Um, But it really begins at the bottom with all of us and how we discuss these candidates. Candidates. And if you think women candidates need more support, what are you doing about it? Are you donating money? Are you helping with their campaigns? So again, this starts with the individual making a difference. Right. And, and I'm not just saying this because you're a guest on the podcast, but I really think it's really important for people to read your book. I mean, first of all, this is the only book I found that went into this much depth on this topic. Right. But it, it even taught me, and I, I considered myself, you know, somewhat politically savvy. It even taught me how to look at my own thinking in ways that I hadn't looked at before, and to think about the way that the media covered covered women, both you know, conservative women and liberal women and liberal politicians, in a way that I hadn't understood before. Good, that's exactly the goal. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, go out and and read and buy this book, please. It is now available in paperback. So you talk about also that journalism students that the need that journalism students need to be trained in um, diversity and, you know, delivering unbiased coverage in relation to gender. And presumably you're doing this, but is this happening broadly? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, I do it myself. I also um, help teach the diversity class at the University of Missouri. Yeah, you are very much seeing college campuses across the state put more and more emphasis on this. Now, there's backlash from some people in the community that, right, we're producing a bunch of snowflakes by uh, (laughs) having them do this. Um, But you know what? It is just really, really important to have these discussions with students who come from uh, a lot of whom come from backgrounds where they may maybe haven't been exposed to a lot of diverse communities, but they're going to be going out in the working world where they're going to have to report on these different communities. And it's really incumbent upon us as professors to give them more knowledge about this in order to be able to provide more objective and more accurate reporting. Well, Dr. Terry Finneman, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a true pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me.